Hey, it's NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Andrew Limbaugh. An infinite number of daily decisions. That's how one of our guests today describes parenting. You know, decisions, decisions. And you know, decisions have consequences, ripple effects, that you can't ever really know how they'll play out in the long run. But on today's pod, we've got two thrillers that deal with both sides of the parenting coin. In a bit, we'll hear from William Landay, who wrote the hit novel Defending Jacob. He's got a new one out about a family, a murder, and the kids asking themselves, how well do we really know dad? But first, NPR's Mary Louise Kelly spoke with author Hila Bloom about her book, How to Love Your Daughter, which is a mystery, but the mystery to be solved isn't something grisly and bloody. Instead, the main character is trying to figure out a more quotidian, but maybe more heartbreaking question. Why can't I make it work with my kid? This message comes from NPR sponsor, Acorn TV. Acorn TV isn't just good, it's brilliant. With exceptional television from around the world. Their romances are more charming, their mysteries cozier, their noirs more gripping, and their comedies cleverer. More clever? Oh, you get it. Acorn TV is brilliant stories told brilliantly. Visit acorn.tv for a 30-day free trial with promo code NPR. So, in a nutshell, Acorn TV. Brilliant. The opening paragraph of the new novel, How to Love Your Daughter, is enough to break your heart. Here is the author, Gila Bloom, reading those four sentences. The first time I saw my granddaughters, I was standing across the street, didn't dare go any closer. The windows in the suburban neighborhoods of Honigan hang large and low. I was embarrassed by how effortlessly I'd gotten what I'd come for, frightened by how easily they could be gobbled up by my gaze. But I too was exposed. The slightest turn of their heads and they would have seen me. They would have seen me. Well, Hila Bloom joins me now from Israel. Welcome. Thank you so much. This question of why? Why this grandmother? This is your narrator, Yoella. Why she has never met her granddaughters? It's the central mystery that unfolds in your novel. And I want to start there. Without giving anything away, just introduce us to Yoella and to her daughter. Okay, so Yoella is a woman in her late 50s. She's a widow for several years, and she's trying to cope with this fourth separation from her daughter. And in fact, just a short while before this scene takes place, she learns the truth about uh, Leah's whereabouts, and so she travels to Holland, and she wants to see it in her own eyes, but she doesn't knock on the door. She goes back home. And Leah? Leah is the daughter. How old is she, and what's her story? So, of course, well, her age arranges throughout the story, but at this opening scene, she's about 28 years old, and she has two little daughters. And from this point on, in Holland, in front of her house, the story will move back and forth in time to tell us about the lives of Joella and Lea and about their small family and how they have arrived at this point and of a relationship that started and was prolonged as a very tender and caring relationship. Well, that's the thing. You show us that they are very, very close when Leia mm-hmm. is young, when she's a little girl. Right. So, you know, when I set out to write the novel, my daughter was still pretty young. She was about seven or eight. Uh-huh. And as a relatively new parent, I guess I was overwhelmed by what seemed like really an infinite number of daily decisions that parenting demanded. Some were really tiny, some were enormous, but always decisions, decisions. And 
I was struck by the impossibility of predicting the accumulating long-term effect of all that. And I was thinking about how parents, you know, driven by emotions that they recognize to be love and by intentions that they perceive to be good and reasons that they perceive to be right, they can still sometimes arrive at doing a very wrong thing. And I was concerned by the potential of seemingly benign intentions to lead to miserable outcomes. And, you know, there are aspects about parenting we often overtly address, including, of course, the juggling and how to get it all done. Mm -hmm. And we often point to lack of time and lack of attention as a challenge in modern parenting. And, you know, we know how to pretty accurately recognize these absences, but there are so many other things. And there is such an abundance of blind spots out there for us. And This is what was going through my head and what was concerning me. And writing was a vessel for my fears and for my concerns. That opening scene Mm -hmm. where you have the mother, Yoela, standing at her daughter's window looking in, you can just feel the longing and the pain. And I I wondered, did you originally start there? Did that come to you at the beginning of the writing or did you have to work through it? Not at all. Okay, tell me. I think I could point to two moments in the very long period that I was writing this novel. It was several years in which, you know, the first one or two years, I was just looking for a story that could fit the sentiment about how I might find myself at a certain point in time looking backwards and seeing that something had turned out very wrong and not being able to trace it and, you know, point out to where it started. And there was this moment in through the writing that I scrolled up to the uh, top of the document and I taped How to Love Your Daughter. And I think that was somewhere like my subconscious was working in the background all the time, you know, trying to figure out what exactly I was doing. And then it's, it finally presented me with it. And I think that very shortly after that, I realized that it was going to this sort of separation, which is not complete because they do talk to each other every so often. But then, of course, Leah does not uh, let her mother know the truth about her whereabouts. Yeah. And then I realized where it was going, and I wrote the opening scene, which finally took its place in the in the opening. Then I had to somehow fill the gap between everything that I already knew about the two and this outcome. And it's weird in a sense because I was making it up, of course. I could write anything I wanted. But it still felt like I was searching, you know, something that would fit into some psychological and emotional truth that would seem coherent to me. And then I would write a, a paragraph or a scene and say, no, 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 that's not what happened. It yeah, has to be that, something that else. That doesn't feel true, right? Yeah, it doesn't feel true. And then it was like I had to discover it, to decipher it, and not to invent it in a way. So I have two sons and sometimes asked about that mother-son relationship, how it differs mm-hmm. from a mother-daughter relationship. And I, <laughs> I always think I have no idea. I don't have a daughter. How would I know? <laughs> But I'll put that to you. How different a book would this be if the title were How to Love Your Son? Mm, I love this question, and and I'll take up on your answer. I would have no idea. I only have one daughter. (laughs) But he does have two brothers from her dad. So I did have some experience, but I would not consider myself an expert on that. But I would tell you that. I think that, of course, for a mother and daughter, there's so much resemblance in the central experiences that we go through. And then you can read into those experiences and maybe read into them too much and try to fix up your experience through your daughters. And that makes everything so much more complicated. Whereas in a mother and Mm. son, of course, there are complications. There always are. But But you're moving through the world in different ways than a a daughter. Exactly. Is your daughter old enough to read this yet? Oh, yes. And she's read it, of course. Uh, She's almost 19 now. Yeah. 
What's that conversation been like with her, if I may uh, ask? The funny thing is that she, she read it in one sitting, really. She entered the room with the pages that I gave her, and she sat there for three hours. And the first thing that she said to me when she got out of there was, gosh, mommy, how did you even come up with this plot? What was going on through your head? And it made me so happy. I mean, this reaction, because it was really literally like a, a sigh of relief that I felt because... I saw how overwhelmed she was by the mere possibility that the book presented. The possibility of being estranged from her Exactly. Mother. And of course, yeah. I told her right afterwards that she can completely and utterly forget about trying and to take after land anyway in her solutions because unlike Yola, I would definitely be coming to knock on her door. So that needs to be erased. And then, of course, we talked about it at length. But I think she was so surprised, you know, that I would even go there in my mind. And you got to say to her, it's fiction. I'm making it all up. Of course. She knows it's she, she knows it's fiction. But then I was already telling her it's fiction that is never going to resemble reality. So we would need to find other ways, you know, if we encounter any problem, this is not how we're going to solve it in the long run. So And you'll be right there in the room and not staring through the windows. Exactly. I would definitely be the kind of mom that knocks on the door. I'm sorry, but that's the truth. <laughs> Gila Bloom. Her novel is How to Love Your Daughter. It was first published in Hebrew and now in the U.S. with a translation from Daniela Zamir. Hila Bloom, thank you. Thank you so much. This message comes from NPR sponsor BritBox, helping people discover a world of British TV, including new original drama Time, starring Jodie Whittaker, Tamara Lawrence, and Bella Ramsey. Streaming at BritBox.com NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from Sattva. Sattva luxury mattresses are every bit as elegant as the most expensive brands, but because they're sold online, they're about half the price. Visit com slash NPR and save an additional $200. All right, when I was being a brat to my parents growing up, my dad would always say something like, well, you can't pick your parents. I'm not quite sure what he was trying to tell me there. Something like, suck it up, I guess. But whatever he meant, he's right. You can't pick your parents. And that's what's at the core of William Landy's new thriller, All That Is Mine, I Carry With Me. He spoke with Here and Now's Tiziana Deering about why audiences find that concept so thrilling. In William Landay's best-selling novel, Defending Jacob, a Massachusetts assistant district attorney is forced to re-examine what he thinks he knows about his life after his 14-year-old son is accused of murder. Chris Evans starred in the Apple TV Plus miniseries based on the book. In this scene, Evans comes clean to his wife and son about a longtime lie. My father, your grandfather, he's in prison. Been there for a very long time. Last time I saw him, I was six years old. My mother took me to see him in prison right after his arrest. You said he left when you were just a baby. That's what I told everybody growing up. It's the same lie my mother told people. Lande has a new novel out, and family and secrets are at the center again. All That Is Mine, I Carry With Me tells the story of the Larkin family. The father, a prominent attorney with a wife and three children. One day in 1975, the young Larkin daughter comes home from school to find her mother gone, vanished. Her father quickly comes under suspicion for murder, but it's only suspicion. And the mother's absence haunts the children for decades. Again, the book is All That Is Mine, I Carry With Me, and William Landy joins us now in the studio. Bill, welcome. 
Thank you. So the book starts with the narrator having writer's block. And I wondered, were you struggling to write? How did this story come to you? (laughs) I was certainly struggling to follow a book like Defending Jacob. I didn't want to write Defending Jacob too. I did want to continue to explore what I've always explored in my books, which is the intersection of crime and family and what crime can tell us about ourselves. So this is really a story. It's it's about a missing woman case, but it's mostly about the effect of that woman's disappearance on her family and particularly on her children, never knowing what happened for sure, never being able to resolve that doubt. So let's stay with that for a minute, because in thinking about the book, it's haunted. It's a haunting book, and it's haunting on several levels. You just talked about one of the ways that it's haunting, which is you're haunted by a missing loved one. But there are a couple of other ways that it's haunting, too. The lack of justice when you don't know, right, is haunting. And it is haunting to find out that you don't know the ones you love the way you think maybe you do as well. And I found myself thinking, you know, after the book, kind of this is a horror story in some ways. I don't think you set out to write a horror story, but is it? I think it's interesting to think of it in that way, because uh, what you're suggesting is that horror stories or crime stories can tell us about ourselves. Horror stories aren't necessarily about monsters. Crime stories don't resonate with us necessarily because they're about criminals. Uh, It's always interesting to me that People who have no other interest in crime or criminals will happily read about murders and thugs and thieves. I think what this suggests is that these sorts of stories tell us something about larger issues than crime itself. In both of these books, you have, you know, in Defending Jacob, parents, and in All That Is Mine, I Carry With Me, kids, adult kids who, and I don't think it's spoiling anything to say, eventually become caretakers, right? Mm -hmm. Who now have to make a choice, right? Which is to be deeply disturbed by the possibility of what someone you're responsible for caring for may be, which is a monster, actually. Mm -hmm. And yet choosing to continue to be the caregiver anyway. And that is... Fascinating to me. And I wonder why you think your readers lean (laughs) into reading about that. Why is that compelling? Well, I think it is because it is a universal experience. What you're describing as monstrous is really not unusual in family relationships. There are things about all of our relatives uh, that we might change. And yet, Unlike friendships or work colleagues or acquaintances, we don't get to choose these relationships and we don't largely get to walk away from them. That is the uh, trap that these children find themselves in. Uh, They don't know what their father may or may not have done in this case. They don't know what may have happened to their mother. And so they're left to wonder. And yet during all of that wondering, they don't have the option of leaving because this is a family. You can have less contact with your father. You can't change who your father is. And so that is what I, the universality that I think makes these sort of stories more resonant. Do you ever dislike the characters you're writing as you write them? Um, you know, <laughs> that would be, uh, uh, there'd be a lot of self-loathing in that because, of course, all of the characters that I write necessarily uh, are, are part of myself. 
Are they? And, <laughs> I, no, seriously, are well, they? Well, they, they have to be to some extent because even if you pattern them on other people, they they take on a life of their own and necessarily you are reaching within yourself. This book in particular is a book that borrows uh, from my own life for a lot of the details. And that was very intentional as well. I wanted this book to feel personal and feel authentic. And so it opens in a, a memoir kind of tone. And that is, is a, a sense of genuineness uh, that I think you can only get if you're willing to look inside yourself and pull those characters and their behaviors from your own history and from your own heart. So then what is it like to have a book, you know, with Defending Jacob, for example, put onto a screen that is now manifested fully in the flesh with other people, different bodies, different voices, with a, <laughs> a Chris Evans, right, who is fully human manifest. And it's supposed to be pieces of you, but now it's been taken away from you. It's a very strange thing. And with the movie, I always separated myself from it because I feel as though books and film are just different mediums and what will work in one will not necessarily work in another. And the power of one is very different from the power of another. Uh, film is very specific, and you're right. When actors inhabit these roles and, and embody them, it's very hard to imagine yourself into them. But when you read a book, the vision of a character, at least to me when I read, never quite coheres into a physical picture. I don't picture Chris Evans or Michelle Dockery in any of these roles. What I'm seeing when I read is uh, the character themselves. It's their true nature. And to me, that's a more intimate way to meet a person. You don't simply see them as we see anyone else that we meet during the day. You enter their stream of consciousness. You hear their thoughts. It's a close connection that isn't possible in ordinary human interactions. And that's why we feel very strongly about the fictional characters that we read. That's why books move us very deeply. And it's also why sometimes readers will come up to me and feel as if they know me, because in a way they do. We've had this intimate mind-to-mind -mind connection. So I did wonder then, now that one of your books was put into film, does knowing that's a possibility in some way interfere with the creative process of writing the next one? <laughs> I try not to let it. I don't picture myself as having anything to do with the film industry. And in fact, I feel that this book is more difficult to adapt than Defending Jacob was, only because of the very long time spans and some of the challenges that the structure of the book entails. This is a book that's told in various parts. It jumps around in time and it jumps around in point of view. So the structure of the book is complex and it is necessarily literary. And some of these devices just wouldn't translate directly to film. One could come away from this book and believe in justice a little bit less. <laughs> so what do you want readers to take away? Well, I think we should all understand that our justice system is very imperfect, and the last couple of decades have made that abundantly clear. However, the reason that the justice system is vulnerable to error is because it is necessarily populated and administered by human beings who bring all kinds of biases to it, who make all kinds of errors in perception, in memory, in narration. And that makes the uh, system of fact-finding error-prone and, and sometimes very unjust. It's also interesting, though, that those errors of perception and memory and narration are also what makes novels work. 
And it's why criminal cases are such an apt subject for novelists. It really gets to how we perceive the world and how we experience one another. The author is William Landay, and the book is All That Is Mine, I Carry With Me. Bill, thank you. Thank you. That's it for this week on NPR's Book of the Day. Let us know what you think. You can write to us at bookofthedaya at npr.org. I'm Andrew Limbong. The podcast is produced by Isabella Gomez-Armiento and edited by Megan Sullivan. Our founding editor is Petra Mayer. The show elements for this week were produced and edited by Fernando Nau-Roman, Ed McNulty, Andrew Craig, Shannon Rhodes, Emiko Tamagawa, Todd Munt, Erica Ryan, and Justine Kennan. Beth Onovan is our managing editor. Thanks for listening. This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on. Your business faces specific challenges and unique opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services, custom tailored to your short and long-term goals. Backed by the expertise, strategy, and resources of a top 10 commercial bank, a dedicated team works with you to support your success and help achieve your goals. Explore the possibilities at CapitalOne.com slash commercial. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. When you're carrying around a lot of stress, therapy is a safe space to get it off your chest. If you're considering therapy, give BetterHelp a try at BetterHelp.com slash NPR to get 10% off your first month.